This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare, and we're delighted that we have Jason Isom with us from Children's Health, and he's the director of their behavioral health. And before we start, we've worked with Intercom, which owns KRLD, the last couple of years to do uh, spots related to suicide prevention. Great. This is a very, very important topic. What do you, in your mind, think about and discuss the difference between behavioral health and mental health? All right. Well, thank you, Steve, and it's my pleasure to be here. When you think about behavioral health, historically that is a term that is a more general term that includes historical mental health topics like anxiety and depressive disorders and uh, bipolar and schizophrenia, those types of things. But then it also includes substance use disorders, uh, things like autism as well. Um, At Children's Health, though, however, our behavioral health department, of which I am a part, really focuses on taking behavioral health programs to the community. So uh, we have our inpatient psychiatric programs, we have our uh, outpatient psychiatric programs, as well as our eating disorders program on our Plano campus. We have our suicide prevention and and resilience program through our Department of Psychiatry. And and those uh, are really focused around our hospital work. Over the past several years, though, Children's has made a concerted effort to take behavioral health and make it a part of everyday health care. That's a very good point that you make. We hear a lot about teen suicide, unfortunately, and we know that there are a lot of issues associated with young people, the pressures as they enter adolescence. But why should behavioral health really be part of everyday life? That's a great question. And so I, I don't know about, about you, Steve, but when uh, several years ago I broke my arm, and when I went to my primary care provider, he immediately referred me to an orthopedic surgeon. And when he made that referral, there was no hesitation on my part. I went immediately to that surgeon, was able to get uh, the surgery that I needed and get my uh, broken arm taken care of. However, in behavioral health, we don't see that. Primary care providers and others in the healthcare field will give referrals to behavioral health care providers, and many times there are gaps in care because there are waiting lists for providers or because the families themselves aren't able to access those uh, referrals for a variety of reasons. They don't have transportation. Uh, their insurance has a different level of coverage for those behavioral health services. And what we find is, is they don't actually link with those behavioral health providers. And so one of the things that we've done over the past several years is try to take behavioral health services and bring them them to where children uh, play, where they go to school, and where they live. Uh, And we've done that through a a couple of different programs, one of which is our integrated behavioral health program in primary care medical clinics. And then secondly, uh, we also have done that through our school-based telebehavioral health program. The idea there is that when the school identifies a student with a potential behavioral health need, and I say potential because they don't have to have a formal diagnosis, they don't have to have had prior treatment. In fact, our whole aim is to intervene early on in the disease process, early on in the family life cycle, so that we can get kids the right care at the right place at the right time uh, in terms of their behavioral health needs. And so when the school makes that identification, they refer to our program. You know, you pointed out intervening early on. 
I've got a couple of friends who are adults that are in treatment, and they told me, I really wish I could have been diagnosed earlier because I had a lot of the symptoms as an adolescent, but because of recognition, uh, maybe schools, parents didn't pick up on them. So that's an excellent point. How can we use, say, technology to help bring behavioral health more into the mainstream and make it more accessible? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the ways that we're doing that now is through our school-based telebehavioral health program. Currently, we are supporting 49 campuses. Over the next two years, um, we will be expanding that program to over 200 campuses, which will include many of those rural areas that you mentioned. And so the way that that works is each of those campuses that we support has an iPad that Children's owns. And on that iPad, there's an application that will allow students at that school to connect through a a secure HIPAA-compliant video conference link with a licensed master's level behavioral health clinician, and they will be able to get an assessment and appropriate treatments through that link. If you were talking to a group of parents right now, what are some of the things that you would suggest they as parents do related to observing and picking up on signs of their children and behavioral health needs? Well, you said it, Steve. The first thing that parents need to do is be observant. I think in our society and our culture, we're all moving so quickly uh, today that it's important to be able to take time to observe and to be aware of what's happening with your children. The second thing that I would say is that you want to look out for changes. So changes in behavior, changes in attitude, changes in sleep patterns, changes in appetite changes in school functioning, if a student uh, has had interest in a certain activity, say they're in the band, and all of a sudden they want to quit and drop out, pay attention to that, investigate that, ask questions about that. The other thing that, that we hear a lot about from parents is that they're scared to ask questions of their children because they're afraid that if they ask questions, then it may implant some sort of uh, depressive or suicidal idea into a child's mind. And and we know from our research and and years of clinical experience that that's not the case. So don't be afraid to ask the questions. Don't be afraid to ask your children if uh, they are feeling sad, if they're feeling depressed, if they're feeling suicidal, if they want to hurt themselves, and, and be prepared for those answers. Sometimes you hear a lot from people, let's say on the street or at the office, What are the things that you're hearing related to mental health? That's a great question. And so we get requests to speak on teen suicide prevention, on uh, adolescent substance abuse quite frequently. Uh, I know that there are many parents who are concerned about autism concerns in their children as they're developing. Uh, And and there's a a larger conversation around school violence that's occurring in our communities, both at the legislative level and in our communities as well. You know, that's a good point and maybe a topic that we can talk about another day uh, that ties into violence in school is bullying and what's going on uh, at schools along bullying and even the tragic uh, stories you hear about people that are bullied that are adolescents that do, in fact, commit suicide. Absolutely. And one of the important things to know about bullying is that uh, you know, when I was growing up, bullying uh, often happened during the school hours, you know, from 8 to 3.30. Well, with the advent of social media, what we're seeing is ch- children and adolescents who are unable to escape that bullying because it's, it's, it's in their lives, it's, in, it's on their devices, it's in their computers, it's on their screens that they're interacting with um, on a moment-by-moment basis, even when they're at home. You know, that's a very good point because you're right. 
I'm you're a young guy. I'm an old guy, but I do remember at school the bullying occurred during school hours. But now it's front and center. And so that's an excellent point that you make. And some of the things our listeners need to think about in terms of when bullying occurs, it's 24-7. Absolutely. And so I would say, you know, we talked earlier about what parents can do. The other thing that they can do is be aware of their, their, their children's social media usage in their accounts. Make sure they have the logins and the passwords and check those on a regular basis so they know what's happening. Jason, thank you again. Delighted to have you with us. And thank you for the good work you do. Thank you, Steve. And coming up next, you go to the hospital and can't communicate. What happens? Laura Burnside from JPS Health System talking about that next on the human side of healthcare, right here on News Radio 1080 KRLD. This is the Human Side of Healthcare Show on KRLD, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Thomas Miller along with Steve Love. Could you imagine being sick and needing to go to the hospital and when you get there, nobody speaks your language? Oh, that would be a very scary experience. We deal with it every day in hospitals and we're delighted to have with us the Senior Vice President and Chief Experience Officer at JPS Health System located in Fort Worth, Laura Burnside. Laura, why is the language services so important? Well, first of all, I love the human side of healthcare that you just mentioned. And this is really where the human side of healthcare comes into play. We have patients who come into JPS every single day that speak other languages. And one in four households in North Texas are English as a second language. So we have to be prepared to fit and and really meet the needs of all of our patients. So last year, we actually um, interpreted for 119 languages within the walls of JPS that um, came out to about 8.7 million minutes. So it's frankly the right thing to do for the patient. If you can imagine being in an environment where you had no idea what was being said, you're scared, you're hurting, you're, you're feeling anxious and not knowing what's coming next. And then on top of it, no one speaks your language or understands your culture. That would be a really horrible place to be. And our patients deserve better than that. So that's the number one reason why we do it. Additionally, it's the law. <laughs> we have to provide interpretive services for our patients. It's part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and it's a joint commission requirement. You know, the other thing, uh, and I, I don't think people focus on this every day the way you do, if a patient comes to the emergency room, you know, it's a patient safety issue as well to understand the language, to understand any medications sure. they're allergic to, et cetera. So it's, as you serve the community members, I can only imagine as we get more global, the need is going to increase. Absolutely. We are um, finding, in fact, I mentioned we interpreted for 6.8 million minutes this past year. That's up from 3.2 just a few years ago. So it's doubled in um, size. And we expect that that will continue to be the case. So we actually have live interpreters, people who are um, employed by JPS. We also have contractors that we bring in specifically for American Sign Language. We have about 140 patients that frequent the hospital right now that require American 
American Sign Language. And then we also use a video remote interpreter, as most other hospitals do, and a language line to be able to meet that need. But the importance of this, and, and you mentioned, you know, kind of the safety issue, there is a direct tie to quality. So if you think about it from the patient perspective, if we just write on a piece of paper, take this medication once, O-N-C-E, time per day, that's what we believe that says in English. But what does it actually say in Spanish? 11. So if a patient takes that medication 11 times a day, that could be very detrimental to their health. So we have to be very careful and very specific that when we're talking about medications or testing or diagnoses or treatment plans, that we're doing it in a way that a patient can understand. And again, at the end of the day, that's just the right thing to do for a patient. All of us would want that. You know, you're right. And I know that all hospitals want to do what's right for the patient. You know, and we hear a lot about healthcare costs. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes uh, you look at the direct care of the patient, but I can only imagine JPS has to probably have a department. How do you staff a department just to deal with language barriers? We do. We have just over 40 employees at the hospital that are there all the time. And then, like I said, we do contract. I, You know, I believe that we've got to figure out a way to put interpretive services into the hands of our patients for the future. And I'm not sure what that looks like yet, but we have got to put control for our patients, with our patients, so that when they don't understand, they have an easy access way to actually say, I need some uh, interpretive assistance. Our team is very good at asking for that, and they're very, very good at providing those services, whether it be a person or a technology that we use. But at the end of the day, patients are, um, again, you know, they're scared and confused and they're anxious, and they just want to be able to understand what the physician or what the provider is saying. You're so right, and it's amazing. Sometimes people may lose sight of an accident, a bus wreck, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, where people are brought to the hospital. And, of course, uh, JPS is a level one trauma center. Yes. Sometimes language barriers can truly be life or death. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine, as you indicated not only medications, but discharge planning and explaining to the people as they leave discharge instructions. That's very important as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's a whole piece that comes at the front end of this, which is we have to make sure that we've even documented the patient correctly within our electronic health record. So in, in America, we use first name and then last name. That's not always the case across the world. A lot of times you'll see last name, comma, first name, and that's how it's put in the system. Well, if we transpose those, and then the next time a patient comes in for care, we can't find their health record. That, again, goes back to a safety quality issue. So we're very, very careful about making sure we get that right. Birth dates are the same way. We do, you know, month, day, year. Well, a lot of times that's different in other, con- in, in other countries. So they do year and then month and day. Well, all of those types of things impact not only the care that patients receive while they're in-house, but it also impacts the care for their discharge. If we can't find their record or we don't actually document it correctly in a way they can understand and or are able to pull up those records as we continue to see them, we, we could really run into some challenges. You know, you bring up an excellent point. Not only are you dealing with 
language barriers, you're dealing with the different cultures of the patients you're seeing, religions, and as you mentioned, surnames, and and how this information uh, basically is used uh, as far as they're concerned in their way of life. And now you've got to have that in a standard format for good medical treatment. Absolutely. We have a very large population of Coptic Christians, for instance, in our Arlington Southeast Medical Home. And um, the, the Coptic Christian religion actually does fasting or a very strong, strict vegan diet for about 271 days a year. Well, if we don't know that from the patient perspective, if we haven't communicated with them in an effective way, we could actually run lab tests or run other tests and and provide medications or a treatment plan that may or may not be appropriate just simply because they're in one of the fasting um, periods of time. So we have to understand our patient wholly. And I think that's what patients really want at the end of the day. They want us to understand their whole person, not just the interaction and the encounter at that time. They want us to understand what's really important to them. And we do our best to do that at JPS every day. You know, it's, uh, it's just fascinating as I hear you talk because not only is it the entry level where they receive treatment, say at the right. emergency room, but it impacts clinical, it impacts dietary. It's yes. really throughout the entire organization that you have to have cooperation and collaboration among all the employees at JPS. Yes. So you've dedicated you personally, but also JPS, to language services. Yes. So how do you think overall you feel it's impacted the patient experience, JPS? So, first of all, the uh, we measure our um, patient experience through our HCAP surveys, just like every other hospital does around the country. And what we find is when we segment out different languages, so we can actually sort the data that way. Those patients, for instance, who are Spanish-speaking, will rate their care higher and their communication higher than our English-speaking patients. So I talked to our physicians about this, and I said, what do, you know, what do you think that means? And there's an intentionality with the communication that's given when there's an interpreter involved that allows us to be able to express it. And to your point, our interpreters not only interpret words, they are watching body language, they're watching eyes, they know cultures, they know religions, they understand all of those food preferences or things that you mentioned. So when that doesn't look right to them, they have the opportunity to say, doctor, would you mind re-explaining that, please? And that allows us to be able to provide better care for our patients who come through that are not um, speaking English as their first language or at all. You know, Laura, I think you summed it up best when you said the title of this program, The Human Side of Healthcare." You have just described the true human side of healthcare as it relates to different cultures, different people, and different languages. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And coming up next on the human side of healthcare, we're going to go out east of the Metroplex to talk to Richard Carter, who is CEO of Hunt Regional Healthcare in Greenville, to find out how their hospital helped the community on a fateful night during a fatal shooting. We're going to take a break now. We'll be back with the human side of healthcare. Hospitals in North Texas are the hub of the healthcare wheel. 
And besides taking care of patients, our area hospitals contribute invaluably to their surrounding communities and neighborhoods. This is the Human Side of Healthcare Show on KRLD, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted that we've got with us today Richard Carter. Richard is president and CEO of Hunt Regional Healthcare. And Hunt Regional Healthcare is obviously in Hunt County. But it's the Hunt Memorial Hospital District, started in 1981, and they do a great service, not only to the people there in Greenville, but they have locations in Commerce, Emory, Quinlan, Sulphur Springs, Roy City, and other areas, and they are a level four trauma center, and they do great work in the community. So, Richard, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on. Well, thank you for the invitation, Steve. I appreciate it very much. Well, you know, we talk a lot about hospitals, and many of the listeners that are listening to this show think in terms of health care within Fort Worth, Dallas, large metropolitan areas. But, you know, Texas has a lot of rural areas. What are some of your thoughts on hospitals in rural Texas and some of the issues that they're facing today? Well, the struggles in rural health care throughout the nation, and especially in Texas and even in North Texas, have been well documented through the years. Uh, and, I, and I think as I assess what makes rural health care different than the urban area, larger urban areas, are a couple of things. You know, one is economies of scale and the economics so in in the large communities, you've got many, many patients, and you can accomplish um, and develop programs over a wide variety of a population. In the smaller areas, you don't have that. So you don't have the economies of scale to spread over projects, which usually require very, very large investments. So that is one of the struggles. And, you know, generally speaking, when you look at a a rural community, you're looking at a community which is older. You're looking at a community which often is uh, more sick because of their age. And you're looking at a population which uh, is usually not, does not have as many resources. Maybe poorer is a better way to put that. Uh, So they have less affluence. And so they have a smaller ability to pay for the things that they, that they need. And those things combined create some real struggles with respect to uh, recruitment of the physicians needed to take care of, of, of these populations uh, and, and also the um, professionals in hospitals and, and other places to take care of these larger populations, of these older, sicker populations. So the rural areas, I think, suffer from those uh, everywhere. And um, in Hunt County, we're a little larger than the average rural community, but we're not as certainly not as large as the metroplex, and we're not as affluent as the metroplex. And so we we struggle with some of these same uh, lack of economies of scale and an older, sicker population with fewer resources, which creates some economic hardships on the uh, the hospitals and the providers in, in those counties. So 
in a few in a few thoughts, that kind of sums up the struggles that the rural areas have. Is there anything more specific, Steve, that you're thinking about? Well, you know, as as you were talking, Richard, you brought up a couple of points. I know you were talking about economy of scale, but you know, in many of the rural areas, and I think people sometimes lose sight of this, you're one of the largest employers. And so you do inject back into the economy and you help provide a very talented workforce that might not otherwise be in that community. We are one of the largest workforces. We're the second largest workforce in Hunt County. Um, actually, we're fairly close to the Texas A&M University Commerce Workforce. We kind of jockey for that second position. In many of the smaller rural areas, that it is absolutely the largest workforce. But uh, here in Hunt County, we're number two. And proud of that fact, we have grown quite a bit. We're up to about 1,300 employees. We have about a $600 million budget uh, on, on, on the income perspective, on uh, gross income perspective. And so we're, we're fra- rather large and do a lot of really interesting and important things. Uh, but you're certainly correct in that, you know, the spin down from our payroll into our community, into our county is significant. And I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but uh, you're looking at a payroll that is probably – 150 million or so, and as that is paid out through the our our county and the surrounding counties and where people live, uh, it has a tremendous benefit to the uh, to the local economy. Uh, do you know what healthcare ranks in the state of Texas as far as uh, as importance as an economic engine? I don't have the one uh, for the entire state of Texas. I do know this here in the Metroplex. As you know, because you're on our board, a couple of years ago, we did an economic impact study, and our 90-member hospitals, which include yours, injects $18 billion into the economy annually here in Texas, I mean here in North Texas. And at that that time, Richard, healthcare was like the number two industry. Uh, Okay. And that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, very large. And and I think the economist will tell you that I think that that 18 billion will turn over about seven or eight times, um, you know, and and so that's that, that makes a big impact. So uh, healthcare not only is important to our lifestyle and how we live and how we enjoy what we how we live, being healthy, uh, it, it has a, a large economic financial impact. You're right. And another thing you mentioned, Richard, that I, I think our listeners would understand. I was reading an article the other day where the number of uninsured children in this country is back on the increase. There are six states that are really driving this, and the largest state contributing to it is Texas. And one in nine children live in Texas. But one of the things that really intrigued me as I read this article is in some of the outlying areas and the rural areas, Many of the adults have jobs, but they are seasonal-type jobs like agriculture. So as a result, they may or may not have health care. And if the adults don't have health care, there's a chance they're not going to enroll their children in Medicaid and CHIP. I can only imagine how your emergency room is used for primary care. 
It is. It is. And, and, that, and that is one of the struggles that we have throughout healthcare, and is because many of our patients, probably about a third, could have chosen a um, more appropriate source of their health care, that being a physician's office or maybe even an urgent care center, rather than come into the ER. I mean, we're happy to care for them, obviously. That's part of our mission. But it does create some struggles down the road with the volumes in the ER and congestion and, and price and some things like that. So uh, we do see quite a bit of that. We have uh, three emergency rooms in Hunt County. Two of them are freestanding one in Commerce, one in Quinlan, then we have the primary ER here in Greenville. And we see about 200 patients a day between all three, so we're relatively busy. And like I said, about a third of those are probably could have been seen elsewhere. So that creates a little bit of congestion and uh, inappropriate use, uh, but we deal with that. But I think you know a lot of the struggles that we have in the ER often come not only from patients who are maybe not, quote, sick enough to be in in the ER, but also because of mental health issues and substance abuse issues. And that is a um, disease that is prevalent through our nation and through our state, and uh, and one where, especially in the state of Texas, we are struggling with how we can fund the care for those patients. You know, Richard, while I have you on the phone, it's great work that you and your team do in the community, and unfortunately, sometimes tragedies occur. Recently, and this was at an off-campus party, many Texas A&M Commerce students were there. And unfortunately, there was a shooting that occurred, which was tragic, uh, certainly tragic. But how did your team respond on that fateful night? Yes, uh, that was a a difficult evening for many in our community. It it took place out in the county. But what one of the responsibilities that we have as a healthcare organization is that we provide all the EMS services throughout Hunt County. We also uh, financially support uh, 14 first responder organizations throughout Hunt County. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, we have the three emergency rooms. So emergency management of the community's needs is a very high priority for us. So in that specific evening, we had a great response from uh, the local police force. I think they dealt with the brunt of the situation. Uh, We also had a tremendous response from our first responder and EMS services that uh, we provide, and and they transported many patients um, to multiple hospitals, not just here in Greenville, but also to the freestanding ERs in Commerce and Quinlan, and um, I think we're managed pretty well given given the, the hectic nature of the event and the mass of humanity that they were able to pile into one relatively small building, but it was well taken care of. So we're fortunate in Hunt County. We've got a fairly strong disaster relief and disaster management group of people and a mindset. And uh, all the agencies, the governmental agencies, the hospital, the EMS, the police were able to meet routinely and discuss, plan, pull together, and then deal with situations like the one that occurred this past fall. We want to thank Richard Carter for that information on rural hospitals. 
Now, coming up in the next segment, the health of our children. We're going to hear from Ryan Eason and someone many of you know from here in the DFW area. You've heard her and seen her, Janet St. James. We're going to take a break now. We'll be back with the human side of healthcare. Thank you for listening to the human side of healthcare on KRLD with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever changing healthcare environment. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Steve Love here. And we are delighted that we're going to be talking about a very serious subject, and that has to do with the health of our children. Today, we have with us Ryan Eason, who's Director of Community Engagement for Medical City Healthcare, and Janet St. James, Assistant Vice President in Strategic Communications. Welcome, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let me ask you about a program that I know you've got that's community-based, and it benefits all the community, but it's Kids Teaching Kids. Can you expand on that and tell us what that program's all about? Sure. Well, Kids Teaching Kids is a program that Medical City Children's Hospital created about 10 years ago, and it's looking at the childhood obesity from a different point of perspective, point of view, and, and the fact that our kids in, in school today are not getting that education through you know, fruits and vegetables. And there is a program uh, that many high schools in North Texas, across the state and across the country, is called Texas Pro Start, and it's a high school culinary program. And it teaches these high school kids at a uh, high school level, the front of the house, which is hospitality, and back of the house, which is culinary. And we found that these kids can play a huge role in engaging younger kids in eating more fruits and vegetables. So our medical city children's hospitals, dietitians educate these high school students each year about understanding food labels, how to calculate recipes. And we challenge them every single year to create healthier snacks that elementary school kids can make by themselves that feature different types of fruits and vegetables. You know, and uh, going to your website and reading some of your material You know, I think there are three different community elements that are involved in kids teaching kids, and you reach people of all ages. Can you expand and explain how that works? Sure. Um, Our program over the years has has evolved immensely, but it's all from education of these high school kids. And so one of the programs is our annual 21-day challenge where we when we again, like we work with the kids each year, they develop different types of snack recipes. It's put into a book and it's given out to all of the elementary school kids in that district for free to participate where they're challenged to make their own snack at home by themselves for 21 straight days. Because it takes 21 days to form a habit. That's why it's the 21 day challenge, so that we hope that they will form that positive habit over the course of 21 days. Wow, that's fantastic. And another thing that we looked at with our partnership with the Restaurant Association is we can all agree that kids' meals at restaurants are not the most healthiest. Uh, they're, they're lacking fruits and vegetables. And so what we did is we tasked these same students and we connected them with local restaurants to – it's a free program for restaurants where we look at things – And these kids do the research and development around that restaurant's concept to develop a kid's fit meal that features two servings of fruits and vegetables. And so uh, that program has really grown not only around uh, our our DFW area across the state, but now it's going across the nation. So these kids are affecting kids in Florida right now through their creation and meals. 
And the third part of it is the at-work program. Uh, so many parents came back to us and said, you know, this um, 21 Day Challenge is great at home. I wish I had something, um, something at work. And, you know, snacking's bad everywhere. And so what we did is we created, you know what, these kids can impact people at the workplace. And so we took that 21 Day Challenge and we morphed it and we took out, you know, the recipes that had Mickey Mouse ears or ants on the log and, and, and had the, the snacks that were more adult-centric, more that fit in a corporate setting. But then we're now able, these kids are now able to engage uh, adults at the workplace as well. Medical City Healthcare recognized that you can't change kids' habits without changing their parents' and their families' habits, right? So a kid can't go to school and suddenly decide, well, I want to eat some carrots. But if the parents are eating chips, then chances are the kids are also going to eat chips. So we have to reach the parents. So the At Work program helps do that. All the kids that are involved in the 21-day challenge, they take this information home to their families, so their families are encouraged to join them on the challenge and learn with them as they go. And that's also why we did the Kids Fit menu as well, because healthy eating can't just be inside the home. You have to make those healthy choices outside the home. So you go to a restaurant, and what do they usually have there for kids? Like chicken nuggets and fries, right? So we wanted to be able to provide healthier options that were still fun and kid-friendly so that people could make good choices inside and outside the house. You know, Janet, you really make a great point. I remember when my second-grade son looked at me and said, Dad, you're putting that in the garbage? Where's the recycle bin? And that was almost 30 years ago. So you're so right. Kids can change adults' behavior. And the parents have to do some modeling as well. So we're giving them the vehicle to model that healthy behavior as well. Right. We know this program's been around 10 years. So the obvious question is, do you have metrics or measurements or outcomes? How do you think overall it's done? Sure. So each of our programs, we do collect data on on the program. One of the things that we look at when our dietitians educate the culinary high school students each year is that we uh, do a pre and post survey to see what they know about a nutritional label. And so these kids are now becoming more educated on understanding how to read a nutritional label because most of us do not know even the serving sizes mean. On the 21-day challenge, since 2014, we've had nearly a quarter of a million elementary school students participate in our annual challenge. And what we're finding that 62% of that nearly quarter million students have tried a new fruits and vegetables. But we're also seeing from those students that have participated over the years, because if you think about it, you've got a student from K through fourth at an elementary school. They're doing it at kindergartner, first grade, second grade, third grade. We're finding that those students that do it year after year when they sign up for the challenge, their pre-snacking habits are so much better than before. And so we're finding that they're taking those teaks, those teaching essentials, knowledge, and skills that uh, the schools provide for the students, and they're learning how to expand their um, culinary. So we're finding some really great data and helping change, hopefully, the culture in North Texas. And to use a pun, you know, that shows that there's a real hunger out there for healthy foods, that they're choosing these healthier options over things that we might think, if you're going out to a restaurant, seem more fun and more celebratory when you go out to a restaurant. They really want to eat. Parents really want their children to eat healthier. And kids are making those choices as well. Right. You know, another byproduct of this program, if you look at it, you're really helping provide a career path 
for high school students. Would you agree? Yes. And um, we have the greatest example um, this past summer. We have a summer internship program where students that have graduated from high school that have been accepted to culinary school, they can participate in our, our, our summer internship program and get scholarship money. And there's a great story about, you know, teachers are awesome. There was a culinary teacher um, in Louisville who um, had a really star student. And when he graduated, he was just going to go and do odd jobs. He wasn't going towards any uh, college. And she's like, no, you have a passion for this industry. So she got him accepted to El Centro College and he participated in our summer internship. And he is fully funded to get his education at El Centro to get that degree. And right now we just heard from him about a month ago, he's working part-time at Stephen Pyle's restaurant. You know, and I heard this morning Stephen Powell's is going to retire. So uh, who knows? Maybe his career path will continue. We're growing the future. That's yeah. right. If your child or company is not currently involved in the 21-day challenge, is there a way within the community they can experience the benefits of this program? Yes. Uh, we have our kids teaching. So it's kids-teaching-kids.com website, and it's available to anybody across the world. There's a great tool on that website. It's called a Healthy Snack Finder. And it's used not only for those parents that are participating in the challenge, but those are not where you can type in the ingredients that you have in your household, and out will come out snacks that these culinary kids have created over the 10 years. So there's 500 different types of snack recipes. And then also the Kids Fit Menu restaurants. They can go to any restaurants that are participating, and you can see that on the websites from La Madeline to um, El Phoenix to Cotton Patch, where they can go and experience a, a meal that these high school kids have created. Steve, we'd like to invite you to join us for the 21-Day Challenge. Try it yourself. Go online and try a healthy snack for 21 days. It's maybe not as easy as you think it is, but you'll feel better at the end. Let us know how it goes. Absolutely. And thanks for that challenge. And thanks to both of you for being on the human side of healthcare. And listeners, thank you for joining us on our second episode. And we also want to hear from you. Please email us at radio at dfwhc.org. And we thank you and hope you'll tune in next week for the human side of healthcare on KRLD and radio.com. The previous program is paid for by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council or its guests and do not reflect the opinions of KRLD or Intercom Communications.